0: Hello and welcome to the first stack of 2024, and we have a special treat for you. With three lovely interviews to start the year with a spring on our step. We have the team behind the Grub Street Journal, a magazine about magazines. Tiffany Joe from new design title Untapped and David Atkins from Newsstand, the UK's largest online magazine store. Enjoy the show. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack, 30 Minutes of Printing industry Analysis, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. And it is fitting that our very first interview of the year is with Joanna Cummings and Peter Halston from the Grub Street Journal, a magazine about the world of magazines and the people behind it, with stories that include an ode to the magazine storyboard, to insights about the industry that is dear to so many of us. And it's been a pleasure to welcome Joanna and Peter to our studio
1: we have both worked in the industry a long time i've edited numerous titles and we really felt that there was something needed that spoke to and on behalf of people in the industry there's been a lot of idealism especially around indie publications and we felt that we needed something that was more realistic more honest that spoke to Real people doing the real jobs, about what was exciting them, about what was challenging them, about where they thought the industry was going to go. And we also thought it was a good opportunity for us to try a little bit of an experiment, to see what it was like to launch a print publication in the current market, you know, paper prices going up readership's declining, etc. We thought it'd be interesting for us both to kind of go through that process and document it and then we could hopefully pass on some of the stuff we learned. But obviously, we also wanted to do something that is essentially a business-to-business magazine, But we wanted to do that differently too. We wanted to cover things that wouldn't be covered in your standard B2B publication about magazines. We wanted to do it in a tone that you wouldn't find in standard B2B publications. So that's all the stuff that came together and was the birth of the Grub Street Journal.
0: And uh, Peter, although there is the B2B side as well, but let's be honest here, it looks fun. It looks super fun. It, it's not like your, perhaps your traditional uh, B2B. Just look at the cover here. Why won't print just lie down and die with kind of a hallowing <laughs> hand coming out of the
2: cemetery? So many magazines, I think these days particularly, if you're not having fun making them, then you know, you're probably not going to get rich. So I think that was a huge part of it for us. You know, the very first issue we planned in a pub and our local pub and, you know, we had so much fun just planning it. The titles for so the first one, was the Don Quixote issue, what kind sure. of idiots still make magazines. Second one was the Jerry Maguire issue, shows of money in magazines. This one's why, Why won't, you know, Walking Dead, why won't print lie down and die. And I think it's those themes that everyone's talking about them all the time. You know, people talk about magazines in print all the time but i don't think they necessarily talk about it in the way that we've tried to talk about it as if we were down the pub you know if you manage to get um i don't know whoever you manage for so the very first issue i managed to talk to mark allen who's a b2b publisher and ask him what kind of idiots still make magazines that's the kind of conversation you'd have in the pub And I think we're trying to get that inside this business-to-business title. We're having fun with it.
1: It was important for us to do that. And of course, we've always worked for other people, produced magazines for other people. And we suddenly realised when we were planning it, oh my God. We can do whatever we want. We can have a B-movie cover, B-movie inspired cover if we want. We can really go for it. We can swear. We're really enjoying kind of exploring that side of it for sure.
0: And I guess you also learn more about the challenges as well, about kind of being the owner of your own magazine, right? Absolutely. What I like about the title is that it's not perhaps overly optimistic about print. It's definitely not negative as well. It just has kind of a common sense view in a way, which I think it's missed because... I do see people sometimes coming to me, I mean, with all the best intentions in the world, and they say print is back. I mean, it's always been here. I know there's some challenges, but come on, you know. Th- mm. th- don't you agree with that kind of statement? A hundred percent.
1: Well, no media really dies, does mm. it? So, and print's the same. But it's at the same time, it's... no way at the levels it was in the 90s or like early 2000s so we yeah we really wanted to be realistic about it and our kind of tagline is brutally honest but relentlessly optimistic and we tread in that line all the time we've got to be realistic about what people are experiencing and what people are finding difficult but also still celebrate what people are doing because they're working so hard and producing such fantastic publications so
0: Absolutely, and, and and just because I, I got into this topic, Peter, I think you wrote something very interesting about how some people compare, you know, the resurgence of print and vinyl. Can you expand? Because I, I do think
2: I, I very much agree with you on that one. So one of my other jobs is the Media Voices podcast. We do a weekly, you know, podcast. We do a newsletter, and we do we have a website. So I wrote for the website, and the point of that piece was no print is not like vinyl. The reason I was just getting fed up listening to people talking about it was actually a BBC article and it's a it's a nice article it's a really good <laughs> article and it was talking about NME coming back into print and how print was having its vinyl moment and I just thought no absolutely not <laughs> you know when vinyl I'm old enough to have bought vinyl when there was nothing else to buy so that was all you could get and when CDs came in I couldn't get rid of vinyl quick enough because it was horrible, you know, you got scratched and it just, CDs were much better and then CDs, you know, were replaced by streaming and the point with vinyl was vinyl went to zero, you know, it got to the point where there was pretty much no vinyl production capacity on the planet and what happened was people saw it as an artifact some of the smaller record companies saw an opportunity, so they went into sort of what you might call artisanal pressings. And it's grown and grown and grown over fifteen years. It's had fifteen straight years of growth. That's not what's going on in print. Print has never gone away. Print it still accounts for anywhere up to eighty percent of publishers' revenue. Depending on you know what sector you're in. So to compare the two is a, lazy, and B, not helpful. Because I think what's going on with print now is that mainstream print is declining in the sense of volumes and values, but it's like almost like the commercial publishers have learned from the indie publishers. Enemy's a great example. They're not publishing 250,000 copies, and they're not giving it away for free on the street. It's not even on the newsstand. It's almost a marketing play in that sense. And print, in that sense, has become like vinyl and it's a sought-after artifact. But commercially, I think it's a very different proposition.
0: Much more powerful, I mean, brings actually still quite a lot of revenue in some ways, right? Yeah, definitely. And Joanna, I want to talk to you about one story that you wrote for the for the new issue as well, which is about paper and sustainability. I love that piece because there is like a little kind of diagram here, myth-busting, and I think I should show this to some of my friends, you know, and I, I love that. And I think that's such an important part of, of the business as well. If you don't mind telling us a little bit more about the story.
1: Yeah, well, we became aware of a company called Two Sides, and they're a nonprofit that aims to educate people, not just in publishing, any company that uses any kind of paper product, about the actual realities of the use of paper and recycling. And I think most people would guess that, you know, it's in a really bad way. You know, print paper is a limited resource. We're running out. It's costing a fortune. We need to scale back on the print that we do. And they're very much promoting the use of paper, and it doesn't have to always be recycled, you know. We need virgin paper to keep that sustainability cycle going. So we decided to cover it because I just thought, this people need to know this, mm. you know. You don't have to scale back your print magazine. You don't have to go digital. And in fact, they said, Josh Birch, who I spoke to, said that a lot of people are scaling back on paper for, in inverted commas, environmental reasons. But actually, it's a lazy, money-saving thing. And it's misinforming consumers, readers of magazines, people who buy packaging, whatever. When in fact, it's really important that we do keep using it, that the replenishment of forests, etc. is at unprecedented levels. And that's really positive. So, yeah, we were just really wanted people to know the, the kind of, again, the realism of it, the the real story behind it.
0: I'm loving this interview. We're destroying all the lazy myths. That's perfect. That's what I like uh, as well. And, Peter, tell us a bit more. I mean, who do you think is the public of the Grub Street Journal? I mean, is it people from the industry, or do you think sometimes
2: maybe someone out of the industry might enjoy this? I'd love for people outside mm. the industry to read that and know more about what magazine making is about. But I think for us, primarily, it's people inside the industry. Mm. So, people making magazines. Indies as well as people that are working for the bigger commercial publishers. You know, some of the people that we have and we try and get as big a mix as we can. Mm. So we've had people from future, Deborah Joseph is in there, we've got, um, who else have we got that's from one of the bigger publishers? Well, people like Mark Allen.
1: We have Fiona Hayes who's like been a creative director on multiple editions of Vogue.
2: So we're trying to get that kind of voice in, but then also people who are proper indie publishers. Joanna did a beautiful interview with a, uh, a couple of people that do a magazine called Somewhere For Us, LGBTQ title in Scotland. And you know, those guys are real, you know, co-face indie publishers. For 2024, I mean, I know you guys are very realistic,
0: as we mentioned, but can we be a little bit optimistic about print? I want to hear maybe from you, Joanna, as well.
1: I think so. I think we have to, yeah, manage expectations. Mm. But people are appreciating print. There's still a market for those more niche publications that both create and speak to communities. You know, the more generalist titles for a while now, obviously, have been declining. Those more specific titles that cater to people who are interested in a very specific subject, I think that is where it's going to continue to really flourish.
0: Thank you very much, Joanna and Peter. And for more information, go to grubstreetjournal.com. And now, still talking about the industry, it was also a pleasure to welcome to our studio David Atkins from Newsstand, which stocks more titles than any other UK retailer. And it's a generational story from the Atkins family. David, tell us a bit more about the history of Newsstand and its plans for 2024.
3: It was originally a wholesale newsagent, so delivering to retailers around the Kent area. Um, it was started by my great-grandfather in 1898, I believe, we think. There's no total proof on that but uh, that's the date we're going with so it's been going a long time and it started off mainly in newspapers and now newsstands is from 1995 so that's focusing on obviously print magazines
0: and you went kind of digital quite
3: fast, and I think you were you were one of the, one of the first to do it in a way, right? Um, yeah, we started the same year as Amazon, which is wow. a source of uh, pain as well as you know uh, we, we, we sometimes think we should have concentrated a bit more on it. But yeah, we started in '95, and, and we thought there was no way to get magazines efficiently online. You could you know even in 2007 or eight, you could buy a fridge with next day delivery, but you'd have to wait I don't know 12 weeks for your magazine subscription. So there was a big a big need there to make it more efficient for the customer.
0: David, tell us about more or less. I think it's very difficult to find a precise number. How many titles you stock? Because there's so many of them. I was looking. There's a title about tractors. Yes, title.
3: there are. It's a <laughs> huge long tail, as we call it. I think in the warehouse, there's about 7,500 issues. And that's a lot of back issues from the independent publishers that we work with. And on sale at any one time, there's normally about 3,500. That was over four, but there's been a few closures over the last few years. as COVID, that's obviously been difficult for many publishers but yeah there's plenty and we, we stock about two and a half thousand of those at any one time for the next day you know immediate purchase so
0: that's a huge number and 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 again i mentioned the magazine about tractors i will check it out that one <laughs> uh but you know it's about fashion i don't think you're kind of specialized in something it's 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 everything really right
3: yeah i think it was very early on i decided that we wouldn't choose what magazines people were going to buy we would give everyone the, the same platform and recently we've moved towards promoting independent magazines we've been working with them for 10 years now but originally it was very much the reader chooses what they want to read and we just do a distribution and delivery method that helps them get access to it what's your relationship with
0: the publishers and do you have kind of a healthy relationship with them How, how does that work
3: yeah um so we work with about 200 odd independent publishers and we do their fulfillment for them so We let them create their lovely magazines, and we try and make sure that they have a really efficient way of getting their copies to their customers. So we do that with API direct to our pack list operations Mm -hmm. and all sorts of things like that. And we work with them. We we deal with them on a daily basis, and it's, it's really nice to work with them because they're very interesting people. And we'd like to take away the pain of distribution, which is not always possible, um, but we do our best. And here on the stack,
0: I mean, when, when I talk to editors of magazines, this is usually the problem that comes mm-hmm. up, yeah. distribution. I mean, today, the costs, I mean, I'm sure, I mean, you, you, you yes. know about this, those
3: challenges, right? Absolutely, yeah. It's a, the, obviously, the postal costs have gone through the roof over the last sort of four mm-hmm. or five years. So that's been a big change in the market. But yeah, it's not something that independent publishers like to do. You know, their creatives, although I would like to say there's quite a bit of creating going on in, in business as well. I find that. That's certainly the way I work. I'm not regular with spreadsheets myself, frankly. But yeah, we want to let them get on with their creations and, and, and just take away that difficult side of it. So,
0: And one thing that I like about the website, as I said, I used to have a subscription to Entertainment Weekly, mm-hmm. which is no more in print, uh, but it was one of the few places where I could buy. But you can select, you can kind of subscribe for six issues or 12 or, mm-hmm. or whatever. I think that's super helpful, actually,
3: in a way. Yeah, I think that was, again, it was, we used to be the wholesalers, as I mentioned earlier, mm. and that was very much publisher and distributor focused. So we'd work with, we'd talk to the distributors about five-year contracts, but we had no control really over over the business or the customer service levels. And so when we'd lost that contract, I think it was very important for me to look at the customer and say, mm. and pivot completely and say, what can we do that's best for the customer? And so things like displaying the cover, selecting the issue, having variable subscription lengths, having quality and range and all that stuff was all all really for the customer only so that's how it's developed like that
0: you have to adapt in a way right because mm-hmm. i re- I remember forgive me if, if i'm wrong but i remember i think harry styles was on the cover of one yeah. of the magazines and it was there was almost like a crash yeah. on the website because people wanted that and but you did a special operation from what i can remember to deal with this kind of uh, interest
3: yeah we've always struggled i mean we've been doing that for quite a while we've been reacting to single celebrities or bands on single issues yeah, yeah. and magazines and it's something we work really hard at but when the Harry Styles massive come onto your website, there's not a lot you can do. And I think ours crashes along with most other people's. But we've ended up getting reprints of American titles shipped over here in, on pallets and then shipping them back to U.S. customers. And it goes crazy. Yeah. It's who, exciting, though. It's good, right? It is yeah.
0: very exciting. And who, who are your customers? Of course, you're based here in the United Kingdom. But I have a feeling that a lot of people from other countries might buy a new stand.
3: Yeah, we send worldwide. I think we're probably around about 70% UK and 30% overseas. But we yeah, we send a lot around the world. Customers are, are, are younger than, well, I don't think younger than you might think, but younger than the general public might think. I think mm-hmm. there's a lot of interest, obviously, in, in magazines and print from the younger audience. But yeah, due to the breadth of magazines we we sell, there's there's no single customer, right? It's a poor it's a breadth of folk.
0: How do you see your business this year in
3: 2024? I mean, are you excited or are you seeing many changes ahead? I'm excited always. I think the indie print market is very exciting Mm. and we've been putting a lot of time and effort into supporting it. I think that's only going to grow, actually. I think digital advertising may start to be replaced more, again, with print, but the right kind of print where the engagement's high and that seems to be just starting. So that's a positive. We're looking to support a lot of the indie brands that we work for as well and getting them some advertising revenue as well. So that's something we're doing on the, on the side, as it were. And I think also that AI and content creation may lend a hand to independent publishing if they can ensure they're the last people to, to use it and avoid it and make a point of being that channel that doesn't that sticks to its principles and, and traditional journalism. I think that would be a very useful thing for them to do, and that, that, that should only help.
0: Out of curiosity, what are your? Uh, do you have any best-selling titles or categories that sells very well and you stand at the moment, perhaps?
3: At the moment, we, we do a lot of craft magazines. We mm. sell a lot of craft magazines overseas. We sell a lot of food magazines, Are always very very popular. But it, is, it, it changes daily. We don't have huge sellers. It's very much a gentle wave of, of titles and sales. So, mm.
0: And one curious, I mean, you have so many titles that you stock. Have you ever thought about creating a physical space where people could visit? I mean, did it ever kind of occur in your mind?
3: Yeah, absolutely. It's something that we hope to do. Again, we did a, yeah. a pop-up store in Canterbury in twenty. I think it was 2018, 19. And that was just to see, again, the sort of new wave of indie titles, how the general public reacted to them. And it was amazing. People were, you know, blown away by the stuff that was being created. And, of course, they hadn't heard of a lot of it. So that was really interesting. And since then, it's been my aim to get back into to retail. So hopefully next year. We've had a lot of IT issues. Anyone who knows me or my business will tell you I've had a lot of IT issues over the last few years, which has stunted our progress for sure. But I think we're through that now, so so we can get on with some of the things we'd like to do.
0: What do you read, David, As a, on a personal level? Which kind of titles you
3: like or newspapers? Mm, yeah, I, um, I'm not a big reader. That's fine. I hate to say this. <laughs> I should be able to read uh, you know, I'm not a big reader, but I do like um, the Beautiful Truth magazine. It's very interesting. Mm. Sort of business anthropology, just general environment stuff. I was reading it this morning. I like the Idler magazine because that's good for just browsing through. And But, but again, I, I have developed a way of looking at magazines because we see so many. I'm afraid I'm quite quick at flicking through and picking bits out rather than sticking with one and and reading it for many issues at a time. Next time I have to visit your warehouse. Yeah, absolutely. We'd love to open it up, actually, because it's a treasure trove.
0: That was David Atkins from Newsstand. To buy your favourite title, just go to newsstand.co.uk. And finally, on the show, a better way to start the year than with a new title. I welcome back to the show Tiffany Joe, editor in chief of new New York based design journal called Untapped. The title, published by design company Harry Butte, focuses on people and projects that look back to look forward. Here is Tiffany with more.
4: Untapped is essentially a design publication that looks back to look forward. We did launch as a digital publication in February of this year, and we launched our first print edition in late October. And the stories in it are long-form pieces that comprise essays and thought pieces and research that are really interested in unpacking the ideas behind buildings and the built environment and objects. So I think one thing that's really important to point out straight away is that we are published by the design company, Henry Built. So it's a brand-funded, editorially independent initiative of this company, but it does not feature any of Henry Built's products or projects. So instead, the journal tells stories about folks who follow an approach that's central to Henry Built, which is looking at overlooked knowledge in new ways as it means for improving the spaces in which we live in today, so that shared focus is the thing that connects the two ventures. And by publishing Untapped, Henry Bilt's able to show that, where you know that it's interested in things beyond the objects it creates, and then also to contribute and be a part of critical discourse in architecture and design spheres. Untapped is not a vanity project. It's not a charity project. It's very much something that is an effort to collect knowledge around how Henry Belt thinks and works and make it widely accessible.
0: Was it always the plan to do a print title? Because, you know, it started digitally, but that was always the plan?
4: It was. I think the the aim was to build an audience first. Since this had no precedent within Henry Belt's history, we really wanted to get it going there, build the audience, and then create the print thing. Yeah.
0: Oh, incredible. And also, let's talk about the design. I mean, because that's, again, one of my favorite things about the title, the format. It's quite different. I love the tone of blue in the cover, I have to say, as well. But tell us a bit more about the format. How did you guys decide that? It's not quite a traditional format. I don't know how to describe it. It's, well, you, you can describe it for me.
4: Well, so the design was done by our graphic designer, Yulis Jelly who also did our brand identity as well as our website. And yeah. Just for folks who (laughs) are listening, it's a vertical format in this Mm. bright highlighter blue and the title sort of wraps around the entire thing and you have to turn it over to read the table of contents, which is kind of a link to the look back to look forward um, aim. And in terms of the content, it's a mix of new and existing stories Everything is enhanced with footnotes and then these really beautiful fold out full bleed images that are sprinkled throughout. And the idea was it's sort of if you take a traditional magazine and fold it in half and put it in your back pocket. And it's just been so fun to watch folks interact with it for the first time. It's quite playful.
0: It's quite a playful magazine in that sense, I would say.
4: Yeah, I agree. Yeah, and it's fun to see it sort of popping out of people's handbags and underneath their arm or in their coat pocket, too.
0: And you have great writers as well. One story that was, you know, I really enjoyed the piece by Edwin Heathcote, I mean, about do nothing, it's called, right? I mean, when architects need to ask, is this really necessary, perhaps, you know, when they have a brief? I thought it was a fascinating piece. And again, that's the type of design magazine I think you guys are. Perhaps not a list of the objects or sofas to buy, but it's questions, right, about the world of design in a way.
4: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that's completely right. And Edwin, who's been a great champion of the publication, this is his second story for us. He's the very longtime architecture and design critic for the Financial Times. His piece called Do Nothing is about doing nothing as an architectural approach. Other pieces in the issue are kind of follow along similar lines, looking at ideas. We do not publish news. We do not publish home tours. We don't publish product releases. So it's evergreen content that we want folks to return to time and time again that we feel is irrelevant over time. The issue opens with a piece by Glenn Adamson, who's a curator and scholar, and it's about the concept of prime objects, which was put forth in, I think, 1962 by this art historian named George Kubler, and it's basically objects that have no precedent but act as one. There's also a really great profile on the architect Amin Taha, who runs a firm in London called Groupwork. And it's about how his work challenges popular ideas of what beauty and history are, specifically like British ideas about it. There's also other really great essays. There's one by Alexander Lang about Instagrammable infrastructure and how it often holds more than maybe meets the eye. And a piece by Eva Hagelberg, very personal and very moving piece actually about how work by this artist named Roy McMakin has influenced her life over the years. And I think one thing just to mention, too, of is that the very center of the book is a little book of images that were taken by the late architects Allison and Peter Smithson. And these are photos of their home that was in southwest England, their country home where they basically tested ideas and materials that would later inform their practice. It's images of the building being constructed and designed and used by their kids. And it just really encapsulates so many of the ideas that the journal is interested in, looking to the past and testing things and retesting things in domestic spaces. So we thought it'd be a really good centerpiece for the first issue.
0: And Tiffany, where can people actually find the magazine? Because, you know, I know it's published by Henry and Sometimes magazines like this, perhaps you can only find in their shops or not. Or can people perhaps subscribe to it or buying in a couple of stockists around the world as well?
4: Yes. Yeah. We are currently selling it on our website and then you can buy it at a growing selection of bookstores on both coasts right now, it's currently available at the Brooklyn Bookstore Head High and also at the upst- uh, store upstate in Tivoli, New York, called Available Items. And also at a shop in, I guess, northern Washington called Fernie. And more to come.
0: What I find fascinating is oh, when a brand decides to launch a publication like this, especially when it's a magazine that's clearly not a catalog, as we mentioned, for for Henry Butte, what does that mean for the brand? You know, that they want to kind of perhaps... To be part of the design discussion, or they believe, well, they believe in journalism in, in beautiful publications as well, right?
4: Yeah, I think it depends on the company. Mm-hmm. We did a lot of research before actually creating Untapped, because there are so many other companies and brands, whether it's in with within design, fashion, music, you know, lighting, furniture, there's so many that have editorial arms. And we found that very often they do read like glorified catalogs and they wouldn't be able to stand on a newsstand the way that I think untapped can. But I know that Henry Built, which has been around for more than two decades, has always felt that there's not enough good design writing out there, which is really the impetus for deciding to create its own publication and commission stories itself that are about topics that reflect Henry Bilt's values and, and ideas and the things that really drive its work. So in this specific instance, I would say that's the reason. But it, you know, may or may not be true for other brand funded publications out there.
0: Thank you very much, Stephanie. And for more, go to untappedjournal.com. And that's it for this week's show. My thanks as ever to our editor, Jack Dewars. If you have any comments or queries, feel free to write to me, Fernando, at fpandmonocle.com. And remember, we're back next Saturday at 10 a.m. London time. Yes, let me know if you have a special news agent that perhaps might need some space here on the stack or a new magazine that comes out or any other observations. Before we go, a little song for you. It's by Caetano Veloso. It's Alegria, Alegria. You have been listening to the stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Until next time. It's
4: goodbye from me. <música> Thank